Hello and welcome to episode number seven of the Abominable Dr. Walsh podcast. It is Friday, October the 27th. It's the last weekend before Halloween. Uh, maybe you've got a costume party or a big party planned for your house. Maybe you're just going to do some decorating in the front yard or in the house for Halloween, or maybe you're just going to sit on the couch, crash, and watch a few good scary movies. But this is it. Uh, contrary to what stores like HomeSense, Home Depot, and Michaels think, it's not Christmas yet. This is our last weekend uh, to get in a few good movies before next Tuesday uh, when all the kids go trick-or-treating. Make So make sure you, you pick a few good ones, uh, carve a pumpkin. For this episode of the podcast, I'm taking a look at a more in-depth look at a movie I just wrote up and posted a review of yesterday on the blog. That's Exorcist the, the Exorcist the Believer. Exorcist the Believer is part of a planned trilogy. So Universal Studios partnered up with, I believe, Peacock and purchased the rights to the Exorcist franchise uh, for a whopping $400 million with the intent of kickstarting a new trilogy, uh, the, the creative team behind uh, this new planned trilogy. Uh, includes David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, both of whom uh, were responsible for resurrecting the Halloween franchise that gave us the quite good 2018 Halloween legacy sequel. Uh, whether you like the trilogy or not, I think in general, the feeling is, is that each successive sequel uh, saw diminishing returns. And as I discussed in the very first episode of the podcast, Halloween ends proved to be pretty divisive and largely did not work. This time around, and again, at this point, there's still plans for a trilogy. The follow-up to Believer is The Exorcist Deceiver, which I believe is still tentatively scheduled for sometime in 2025. But it looks like that you know plans for a trilogy might have been uh, a case of having uh, your eyes being bigger than your stomach. Uh, because The Exorcist, The Believer, uh, didn't divide critics the if you take a look over at rotten tomatoes the critical uh, or tomato meter score is, is pretty negative it's below 30 percent i think it's hovering somewhere around between 20 25 percent so critics largely uh were not impressed with the results the box office take isn't bad so the the budget i believe for the exorcist the believer falls just around or just slightly under 30 million i think the global box office take is somewhere in the vicinity uh, of $80 million, just south of $100 million. Definitely speaking, that's not bad. Um, when you shell out $400 million to uh, kickstart a new trilogy, it's probably not a uh, an overly reassuring result. And having watched Exorcist the, Belie- the, Exorcist the Believer, uh, the results were pretty disappointing, and that's what I want to take a look at in this episode. So without any further ado, let's just jump right into it and take a look at what works and what doesn't work with this new legacy sequel to The Exorcist. Well, where do you start with, again, uh, uh, a movie that's supposed to kickstart uh, a franchise that you just paid $400 million for? And, and that's probably the best place to start is to talk about budgeting and, and horror movies and maybe budgeting movies uh, more generally. Again, the actual budget for The Exorcist, The Believer, 
is probably a little high or a little north of what you would probably see in most horror movies. But for a, a higher, what's the word I'm looking for, a more elevated type of horror movie or a more prestige title, uh, give or take, again, and the budget was somewhere around $30 million. That That's in and of itself not bad. But we've seen this trend, and it's not germane just to the horror genre, but this trend of shelling out big-time budgets for movies that set filmmakers uh, and cast up really to fail. Uh, the movie I kind of point a finger at, not that it's the first movie to have a bloated budget, but when James Cameron, uh, when his Avatar 2 came out, and I remember reading how much money the movie would have to make to even break even, and, and essentially the number was you know breaking massive box office records having to be, I think it had to either be the number one box office movie of all time or somewhere in that vicinity. So in other words, it's straight out of the gate, you have a movie that has to break records just to make back its budget. And we've seen a few other examples. I mean, in the horror genre, the example I touched on a few episodes ago was, was Renfield. So there's a movie released back in April at a time that surprisingly was somewhat crowded for horror movies. It's a pretty niche type of movie. It's a mix of horror and comedy uh, that was came with it a pretty you know hard rated R for its over the top violence. Renfield was never going to have wide audience appeal, and its budget was somewhere in the around sixty to seventy million dollars, somewhere in that range. There, there was no chance that movie was ever going to make that money back. We've seen other examples of, and, and studios love franchises and intellectual property, but we've seen examples with with budgets that just aren't realistic. The Mission Impossible series, uh, those are fun movies, but the budgets that they come with set up very unrealistic expectations. Uh, the other best example I can think of is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which which in addition to kind of a, a really bloated budget, is taking an intellectual property that uh, really is appealing very heavily to Generation X and, and maybe to a lesser extent, Baby Boomer's nostalgia. The last good Indiana Jones movie came out in 1989. The last Indiana Jones movie that came out, period, was what, something like 2007, 2006. So that's, you know, not uh, pretty long ago. Spending that much money on a, a franchise that really had its hit its prime in the 1980s, whose lead star is 80 or just north of 80 was probably, you know, if the, if the movie had been modestly budgeted, it might have turned out to be a success. Haunted Mansion, uh, Disney's Haunted Mansion, another example of just a ridiculously oversized budget that sets a movie up to, uh, to fail straight out of the gate. Uh, purchasing the uh, copyright or the, the rights to, to produce and distribute Exorcist movies for $400 million is was probably a bad decision right out of the gate. And this isn't a criticism of The Exorcist, but as a franchise, The Exorcist really hasn't ever worked. The original Exorcist came out in 1973. Uh, today we use terms like elevated horror. We, we talk a lot when we think of more kind of odd, uh, slow burn, intellectually driven psychological horror. We think of, of A24. Uh, elevated horror has always existed. Uh, there's always been horror movies that had more on their mind that were uh, kind of what I would call prestige movies. Rosemary's Babies, for example, or in this case, The Exorcist. The Exorcist really was never a movie that probably was designed to produce a lot of sequels, and all the efforts to do so have pretty much failed. So the original or first sequel to The Exorcist, which came out... I think four or five years after it came out in the 1970s, 
Exorcist 2 The Heretic isn't just considered a bad horror movie or a bad follow-up to The Exorcist. It's it's largely panned or regarded as one of the worst movies of all time. So if you ever are on an entertainment kind of periodical online and, and you happen to stumble upon a worst movies of all time or worst sequels of all time, there's a very, very good chance The Exorcist Part Two: The Heretic is going to be on that list. That's how bad it was. It would take another decade or so before The Exorcist Part Three would be released. That was based on William Peter Blatty's novel Legion. Blatty himself directed the follow-up, which starred George C. Scott. Actually quite a good movie. Easily the best of, uh, outside of the original The Exorcist, it's the best of the, this small franchise. But even at that time when it came out, The Exorcist 3 was largely ignored by audiences. It didn't do well at the box office and critics weren't impressed. It took about 20 to 25 years for that sequel to kind of earn that well-deserved cult status, but certainly not something that would be uh, encouraging or what would make me eager to green light spending $400 million to get the franchise rights. It gets worse because over a decade later, when the decision was made to go the prequel route, to explore uh, Father uh, Lancaster Marin's first encounter with the demon Pazuzu. There are actually two different prequel movies that are roughly were filmed around the same time. So The Exorcist, the beginning, uh, which was, I believe, directed by Rennie Harlan, was actually, Harlan was commissioned to direct a sequel after Paul Schrader had made what was called Dominion, uh, which uh, was his version of a prequel. So as the story goes, Schrader uh, filmed his movie, uh, went through a couple of edits at the request of the studio, which felt that it lacked uh, scares and, and gore to be an Exorcist sequel. They felt that uh, Schrader's attempt at a prequel was too meditative and, and kind of lacked uh, the scare factor and the gore factor. Eventually, Schrader just walked away. Uh, the studio decided to hire Harlan. Uh, the only actor that stayed was uh, Stellan Skar Skarsgar, playing a younger Father Marin. So The Exorcist, the beginning, uh, retains, I guess, bits and pieces of the, the original screenplay. It got released. Critics hated it. It did badly at the uh, box office. The studio decided we have this other movie that's in the can. Maybe if we release it direct to video, maybe that we can recoup some of our money. That was called Dominion. And they added the subtitle, a prequel to The Exorcist, just so audiences could distinguish the two. It also didn't do very well with either audiences or critics. That was in the early 2000s. So here we are 20 years later. You bring in David Gordon Green and the same creative team that resurrected Halloween. Can they do the same for The Exorcist? Right from the start, I would argue from the starting line, David Gordon Green is, is you know, playing a losing game because, the again, The Exorcist is not a franchise that has any proven track record of being a financial success. The original The Exorcist was kind of lightning in a bottle. I think if the movie was released today, I think it would still be well regarded. Uh, it's a classic movie. Would it be the sensation that it was in 1973? Um, it was a different time period. It's certainly not a movie that screams box office hit. If you've seen it, I think that's, I think most people would understand what I'm saying. So, straight out of the gate, what I would argue is uh, The Exorcist, The Believer. Uh, was facing a massive uphill battle to be successful.
course, the exorcist, the believer, has another big problem uh, going uh, working against it, and that's that it's not a particularly good movie. Uh, it's neither all that scary. It's not that shocking. Is it? I guess it's not entirely fair to say the exorcist, the believer, is a bad movie because technically speaking, it's not a bad movie. It's the production values are good, uh, the casting is good, and everyone is, is, is turns in a good performance working with that which they have. There is somewhere built into the movie a good idea or, or a set of themes to explore that does connect or has some kind of fiber built in to the original The Exorcist. Uh, everything about it looks good, but it's not a good movie. It's uh, And part of it is, regardless of what David Gordon Green does behind the camera, whether it's fair or not, your movie has the words or the title The Exorcist built into it. It's an exorcist movie. It's connected to the 1973 original. And like it or not, it's going to draw comparisons, favorable or otherwise, to that first movie. It's been 50 years since The Exorcist was released in theaters. And it is a movie that is every bit as shocking and powerful as it was in 1973. And yes, I recognize that there are some people, and probably not entirely just younger audiences who are probably used to a faster pace of movie, but I'm, I'm sure there are people who, who grew up with The Exorcist who might think it's overrated or at the very least uh, a bit of a slow burn. And that's true. Usually what I tell people when I recommend The Exorcist, if I know their movie taste is that you have to be patient, that it's, it's a horror movie second and more of a psychological thriller and drama first. Uh, that has elements of horror, but the elements of, hor of horror that are present in this movie remain shocking. There are scenes there that, whether you're a religious person or not, I think are going to make you turn your head or, or wince a bit or, or turn uh, turn and look to the side. It's got a haunting uh, atmosphere even in the slower parts. And the final that those final 20 to 30 minutes are, are pretty intense stuff. In contrast, uh, and David Gordon Green in Hall the first his 2018 Halloween legacy sequel, he, he knows his way around a horror movie. He, he gets atmosphere because one of the things I really liked about that 2018 sequel to Halloween is how much it tapped into the original movie's tone. It was scary. It had shocking moments, uh, but something just doesn't quite connect here in Believer. There are a handful of scares. Most of those scares I would describe as, as kind of the loud sounds approach to jump scares, but they work. But a lot of what Green does in, in this sequel is recycle things that worked in the first movie that A, don't work now because we haven't just seen it in the original The Exorcist. Pretty much every Exorcist movie has taken similar scares or approaches to the material and recycled it. They've become tropes. We're, we're familiar with it. They're, they're not shocking. They're things that we actually expect to see in these types of movies. So for example, the final scene of the actual exorcism itself, really aside from its final twist, doesn't do anything that we haven't seen before in another movie centered around demonic possession or exorcism. Uh, and that's completely contrary to what the original The Exorcist did, which felt and still feels like something completely different that you had not seen before or haven't seen since. Some of the imagery that uh, Gordon Green does use that is effective is also stuff that really, from a, a storytelling perspective, doesn't work. That is, he he takes, for example, if you've seen the director's cut of William Friedkin's original The Exorcist, where they have those scenes uh, of quick flashes of a demonic face, usually in different parts of the screen in the background, it uh, 
the believe, believer uses those images, even though it, it's never quite clear, but I, I'm pretty sure it's a different demon in this movie that those images should not work in this particular movie. So it's not scary. It's not particularly shocking, but probably if there's a really big problem with The Exorcist, The Believer, it's a pacing problem. If you thought the original The Exorcist was was too slow and too meditative, uh, too rooted in psychological horror, the good news is The Believer, or Believer, I should say, takes the exact opposite approach. This is a movie that rarely uh, pauses long enough for any one particular moment or scene to kind of you know, marinate and and kind of earn uh, any sort of emotional uh, kind of develop any kind of an emotional core to build any sort of atmosphere. I would describe this sequel as very much almost like a connect the dots kind of approach to storytelling rather than having a compelling story that drives each and every scene. It looks like someone blueprinted out. We need to do a, B, C, and D from start to finish so here's our scene that accomplishes that this goal, check. Here's a scene that accomplishes this goal, check. Now let's just quickly move on and get to the next scene. The first third of the movie, when we're introduced to uh, the main character uh, and his daughter, when the two girls go missing in the woods and there's that initial search for them, that part is actually quite compelling. If the rest of the movie had, had fit that tone and pace, Believer might have been a pretty good follow-up to The Exorcist. Instead, it feels like, again, a race to kind of check off kind of obligatory scenes that they feel need to be present in a movie. So, for example, you get the default scene where uh, science and law enforcement try to offer rational explanations and just can't. Uh, and then it's rather, in a, what I would describe, an almost perfunctory manner, we immediately skip to kind of the let's go the, the exorcism route. Uh, even the exorcism itself feels very perfunctory. Like it, it, it starts and it ends in an almost unspectacular fashion. Characters, uh, I mean, the movie is kind of jam-packed with lots of ideas, which is something I'll touch on, but there are characters that pop up that really don't add anything to this movie. And the impression I got while watching Believer was is that in the background, in terms of storytelling, this was a movie that was trying very hard to set up two other movies, uh, a new trilogy, that some of these were characters who probably might, if they get to make the next two movies, will probably play larger roles in those films who aren't playing much of a role in this movie, but are just taking up space. When uh, the priest from the Catholic diocese shows up for the exorcism, I mean, you get a prize if you can remember his name because I didn't catch it. He, I didn't know who, I mean, I was aware I'd seen the character in scenes, but his importance to the story, it, it kind of surprised me when he turns up at the end. Again, a lot of the movie just feels like we need this scene in the movie because it's a movie about exorcism. Here's the scene. Now let's just skip and get to the next part. The result is when you cut to, to moments in the movie that really should feel powerful, they, they just feel like they just happened. They don't feel significant. It's kind of like a, you're, you're checking your watch thinking, okay, it looks like we're finally at the end of the movie. And part of this is connected to some other issues that I'll, I'll point out in, in the next part of this episode. But The Exorcist, The Believer, isn't, isn't scary. And it just feels like it feels like a case of two things. Uh, lazy, kind of a lazy checklist approach to make sure it had some sort of connection to what we would consider to be a movie that deserved the title The Exorcist in it, while 
this kind of background effort at we need to build a world for two subsequent movies to exist in rather than letting those movies just kind of naturally follow whatever happened in this first one it's the same kind of problem we saw when uh, universal was trying to start their dark universe and entered the mummy movie where entire chunks or scenes of the film just seemed to, to exist to, to purpose or serve uh, a potential sequel or a franchise So one of the points I touched on in the last segment was that The Exorcist feels like it's trying to do too much, or I should say The Exorcist, The Believer, is trying to do too much to service future potential sequels. So again, uh, Universal's been pretty clear they want a, a trilogy. They've even got a title for the second movie, Deceiver. There's good ideas in this movie. So one of the things that I, I liked about the screenplay was kind of the, the the more thematic element. That is, like the original The Exorcist, this movie touches on what faith and belief is, but its its view of faith, faith and belief is much more fitting for 2023, whereas the original The Exorcist takes a very Roman Catholic view uh, of evil, demonic possession, the rites of exorcism, uh, even the role of Father Karras. Uh, this movie, again, similar to the original The Exorcist, Exorcist has its main character who, who has lost their faith following the, the tragic death of their wife. And that's a pretty typical the typical element of what I would call pro-faith horror movies. Now, most pro, pro-faith horror movies, or at least the way I would define them, again, tend to be very much rooted in Christianity. One of the interesting ideas that comes up in this particular sequel is the idea that, uh, that faith and belief goes beyond kind of the uh, rules and scriptures of any particular religion that is. So one of the ideas of the movie is they bring together individuals from different faiths and different backgrounds to perform the final exorcism. That is, it's not a, a traditional Catholic rites of exorcism. So the movie takes a much broader view of what faith and belief means today. And it's an interesting idea, but much of that idea gets lost as a result of packing in not just too many ideas into the movie, but too many characters. So a lot of time is given to Leslie Odom Jr.'s uh, main character, uh, you know, a grieving father who's who's lost his wife um, uh, in a tragic accident at the start of the film set 13 years earlier. His daughter and her best friend go missing. He gets a good emotional kind of character arc. Uh, what's interesting about the movie is, is that it has an opportunity to, to offer a really good uh, examination of what faith is because you have one father who has lost this faith contrasted with his, his daughter's best friend and her parents who are actively involved in their church and their church community who have strong faith that's rooted in more traditional Christianity. The, the problem is, is that because the movie and the screenplay throw in all these additional characters who, who take up different chunks of time at different points in the movie, I couldn't even remember the names of the parents of the second missing child. I don't even think the scripts or the, the at least the, the credits for the movie give them a last name. The result is there, are, again, without spoiling anything about the specific ending, there's a, a core scene that does involve the father of the other missing child, Catherine, 
that had the movie spent even a little bit of time investing the same kind of focus on those parents as it did Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, the scene would feel much more impactful. But instead, it, those characters get watered down and largely they're in the background. I mean, the, the most egregious error, and, and it's not the actress's fault, Anne Dowd, who you might remember from Hereditary. She's, she's fantastic, a great actress, uh, gives a very good performance as a nurse who is a, a former or at least in the past when she was younger, want to be a nun. It's just another character with another backstory that by and large, Anne Dowd's character's function in the movie is, is really two things. One is to provide important exposition at certain points. It's Anne Dowd's character that leads uh, uh, the movie to bringing back in Ellen Burstein's uh, Chris McNeil. And we'll get to the legacy portion of the sequel in the next segment. The other function that Anne Dowd's character plays in this movie is one that's already filled by Leslie Odom Jr.'s. Uh, it's the classic trope of in the middle of the exorcism, the demon knowing uh, a flaw or, or a dark secret of one of the individuals performing the exorcism. That moment where they expose it, there's the shock, the look of horror on the person's face. Uh, we get it twice in this movie and it's, it's not necessary. If you Keep Anne Dowd's character as a bit player somewhere way in the background of the movie. You elevate the importance of the parents of the other missing child and give them a bit more of a, a character arc. And you might have a better movie, or at the very least, you, you might have a more concrete kind of cohesive theme for the movie to hang on. Instead, it's, it's very much watered down because the movie just gets too busy. Uh, it's too busy with trying to cram too many ideas. It's too busy with too many peripheral characters and not enough scares. To touch on in this episode is, you know, maybe not the worst part of the sequel, but it's definitely, I think, a big question that lingers over it. Did The Exorcist Believer have to be a legacy sequel in the same way that the 2018 Halloween was a direct follow-up to John Carpenter's 1978 original? Well, you can't blame David Gordon Green and the rest of the creative team for going back to the same well that worked uh, so well in the, for the 2018 Halloween sequel. Uh, now, of course, you could point out that that trilogy saw significant diminishing returns. So as divisive as Halloween Kills was, as and really it suffered largely from being the middle entry of a trilogy, uh, we talked about way back in episode one of the podcast, the divisiveness of Halloween ends. Whether you like the movie or not, it there's no denying it polarized audiences and critics alike. Uh, so when approaching the exorcist believer, they take a similar approach. That is they, David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, and uh, the rest of the creative team decided we're going to ignore all the other sequels. This means no exorcist part two, the heretic, which is a good thing. Uh, is it good or bad that they ignore exorcist part three? It really doesn't matter. Because what the events of that story are so different and removed from everything else that's come up in the, the Exorcist franchise, I would assume that the, this movie ignores, not that it matters the 
either of the two prequels. But we get a direct follow-up. I mean, really, the big question is, did did the uh, did Believer need to take this approach? Uh, because really what it boils down to, and I'm going to just give a, a quick warning here that what follows will be spoilers for uh, what happens with Ellen Burstein's uh, Chris McNeil and events that unfold in the second act. I'm not going to spoil what the ending is, so I'm just going to focus really on largely uh, the inclusion of Ellen Burstein's character from the original movie, because this is by and large how uh, the Exorcist Believer treats the the original movie. So, from a narrative perspective, there's no real obvious connection to the possession from the original 1973 movie. They don't name drop Pazuzu. In fact, it, it does appear it seems to be a, a, an entirely different demon. The only character that connects this movie to the original movie is Ellen Burstein's character. Of course, she plays the mother, Chris McNeil. Uh, Linda Blair does turn up in, at the very final scene. So what I would argue is really uh, Ellen Burstein's role in the movie ultimately is something of a distraction. And, and, and again, a movie that is really busy, that has a lot of peripheral characters, uh, that doesn't really allow any one particular scene or moment to kind of gestate and, and, and develop any sort of urgency or atmosphere. The character doesn't play a really significant role. By and large, the presence of uh, Ellen Burstein's Chris McNeil is to do two things. One, it's to serve as a point of exposition, to kind of offer that bridge between the exorcist and the exorcist believer, and to kind of set up its major theme that kind of guides that final exorcism scene. So McNeil, uh, from since the first movie, what we learn is that she's written a book, that's essentially kind of like a self-help book for people who have experienced similar phenomena. It, it's driven a wedge between herself and her daughter, Regan. That is, Regan obviously probably not very happy about having her personal life and you know the worst moment of that of her life uh, detailed in a book. So Chris McNeil kind of relays to the audience and characters that she's had no contact with her daughter for years, doesn't even know where she lives. But she's spent a lifetime now studying exorcism across cultures and religions. And really, this is kind of what is the impetus for this idea of a more general diffuse approach to faith and belief that's kind of at the core of this movie and what guides that um, final exorcism scene. Uh, Chris McDeal plays absolutely no role in the final act of the movie. That is, in the middle act, her character, uh, for some reason, confronting one of the possessed girls, uh, the child. Uh, picks up a crucifix and then proceeds to gouge out Chris McNeil's eyes. So for the re remainder of the movie, Chris McNeil is sidelined in a hospital bed and, and blinded. So she plays something of an exposition role, uh, uh, role I should say, and she's kind of the connective tissue uh, that allows the movie to to use the title The Exorcist in it. Uh, Linda Blair's appearance is really a you know blink and you miss it cameo that comes at the very end of the movie so before the final credits roll it's kind of like a montage of showing you where all the characters in the movie are uh following the events of the exorcism itself and we see linda blair's rika mcdeal join her mother bedside at the hospital and taking her hand uh implying that the mother and daughter are now reunited one can assume that really the other role that uh, chris mcdeal plays in this movie is is to set up other potential sequels so my assumption and i think most people would assume that ellen burstein and linda blair the plan is to have them come back for either deceiver or the plant uh, third movie in, a, in the trilogy the their overall impact on the movie itself is, is entirely minimal. Does this need to even be called The Exorcist? I mean, obviously, uh, when you spend four hundred million dollars to get earn the rights or get the rights to a franchise, 
you're going to have the title. Part of the spending that $400 million is you want the title The Exorcist in your movie. Uh, there's the, the name brand recognition that's going to draw audiences in, uh, at least hypothetically. Uh, did they need to go so far as to bring these characters in? Because it, it works about as well as bringing back the cat character of Sally Hardesty in the Legacy Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel that Netflix platformed in early 2022. It just does not work the same way that it worked when they, the same creative team did it for the 2018 Halloween. Uh, Chris McNeil really has uh, very little to do in the movie because she is a peripheral character. It really is for exposition and probably a little bit of table setting for a future franchise. It's something I hate when movies do. This reminds me of, I mean, this is obviously not as bad of a defender as Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, but there was a movie that, in my opinion, largely uh, functioned like an hour and 20 minute preview for the next movie in the series. Uh, and that's kind of where Chris McNeil's role fits into this movie. It just isn't necessary. Had they, I mean, probably the, the best way to make this a legacy sequel would have been to use the same demon that was part of the possession from the original movie. Uh, this is just kind of like a, a needless Easter egg. Marvel is guilty of the same problem of introducing characters and, and ideas that you know, it takes several years, if ever, for it to pay off further down the road. It's Again, it, this is not the worst problem uh, that I would point out for The Exorcist Believer, but as a legacy sequel, it just doesn't work the same way as uh, it worked for the 2018 Halloween. <laughs> Well, that just about wraps up episode seven of uh, the podcast for t uh, this week. Uh, my concluding thoughts at The Exorcist Believer is, I would call very much a middling effort. Uh, at best, it's it's watchable from start to finish, great production values. It's definitely intended to be a prestige horror movie. And I, I would argue the cast more than reflects that. There's lots of good ideas. There's a lot of talent behind the movie, but the end result is it, it falls well short of expectations. It's a pretty disappointing way to start a, a planned trilogy and whether we actually see Deceiver come out uh, two years or a year and a half from now, let alone uh, a third movie, I think really is going to come down to dollars and cents. Uh, the Exorcist Believer made money at the box office. Did it make enough to recoup both production and marketing costs? Probably a little bit. Is it enough to justify bankrolling two more movies in the hopes that you're going to come close to making back the $400 million that the uh, that Universal Studios and, and Peacock spent to acquire the rights to the Exercise franchise? Who knows? Again, that's this is probably going to be a decision that gets made in a boardroom. Uh, you know, ultimately, how much audiences are actually clamoring for two more movies. The original Exorcist is 50 years old. Uh, we haven't had a good Exorcist movie since I think Exorcist Part 3 came out in 1990. Uh, and even that movie, that's probably largely subject to opinion. It's more of a cult favorite than anything else. 
either way, uh, if you're looking for something to watch for Halloween, you could do worse than Exorcist uh, Believer, but you could certainly do a whole lot better. I do hope you enjoy your Halloween weekend. Uh, if you're not having a party or doing any decorating, uh, carve a pumpkin, watch a good scary movie. Stay safe on Halloween night. Uh, I hope lots of uh, kids come trick-or-treating to your door, and hopefully you have a little bit of candy left over for yourself. I know I'll be uh, curling up on the couch around 8 o'clock to watch John Carpenter's original Halloween, which is what I watch every year on Halloween. Thank you again for joining us, and I will see you again in early November. <laughs>